Welcome to series two of Crime Tapes. Now, throughout this series, we're, we're still in a situation where we're dealing with um, the pandemic. And, and as a result of that, we're having to record these podcasts in a, a slightly different way, including um, from home. So the sound quality might not be that that we had in series one. Please do bear with us a little bit on the quality of sound, which throughout the series of episodes you might find is impacted by the circumstances that we're dealing with. Hi, you're listening to Crime Tapes. This is a podcast made by Staffordshire University in association with the School of Law, Policing and Forensics. This season of podcasts focuses on policing and the broad issues surrounding policing Particularly, we're looking at cases here in the United Kingdom, but we're hoping that listeners will find things that are of interest across the world. Today, I'm joined by two guest experts, Emma Tilly and Professor Caroline Sturdy-Coles. The episode this week is about the missing and the unidentified. And in particular, we're going to look at how the police work to identify unidentified remains in cases where a body or body parts are found and there's simply no knowledge very often of what's happened. Now, before we begin to look at um, the practices of the police identifying um, missing people and indeed in some instances missing bodies, um, be nice if we can uh, identify our our speakers. So uh, first off, Emma, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, My name's Emma Tilley. I'm a lecturer in policing at Staffordshire University. I'm also a PhD researcher conducting research into this area, uh, unidentified bodies and missing persons. And I'm also a volunteer at an organisation called Locate International, uh, which also looks to review um, cold and long term cases uh, of missing persons and unidentified bodies. Thanks, Emma. And Professor Caroline Sturdy-Coles. Hi, thanks, James. Um, Yeah, my name's uh, Caroline Sturdy-Coles. I'm a professor of conflict archaeology and genocide investigation here at Staffordshire University. Um, My background is in forensic archaeology and the investigation of long-term missing persons cases. Um, So I work with police in the United Kingdom to identify the locations of missing persons, particularly those buried in a grave. Um, or where bodies being concealed. And I also do a lot of work internationally um, on the investigation of genocide, searching for the remains of people who've been killed in the course of mass violence, um, predominantly in Europe and a particular area of expertise of mine being the Holocaust. Thank you, Caroline, and and thank you, Emma, and thanks for joining us on Crime Tapes. Now, it's a topic that's fascinating, and and as Caroline's already highlighted in in some ways, it it runs from um, the kind of case at an individual police force level locally, where it it might simply be, although I say simply, it might be about identifying um, someone who's gone missing in suspicious circumstances where there's a a chance, there's an attempt to locate the body, but it runs, but this is a, a field that forensic archaeology and and sort of identification of bodies which runs a whole continuum doesn't it right the way through to as you were saying Caroline in in many cases um, the identifying 
of, of people in, in mass graves, in, in war crimes and, and genocide. And um, previously we've we've had um, we've looked at things like um, the the conflict in the former Yugoslavia on crime tapes, which shows the kind of horrendous and mass horror. But I suspect that many of our listeners will probably be more familiar with the kind of um, immediate story that you might see in, in your locality where, for example, and, and I remember particularly, I'm, I'm from Birmingham, and at the moment, the, the case that's making the news, or one of the, the sort of case historically that's made news recently with searching for bodies has been that of, of two young men um, from Birmingham that disappeared called the, the Milk Carton Kids. And there's been a kind of, um, a, a lot of attention given over to that. But but actually, Emma, this in some ways, this even here, if we kind of start with that immediacy, that could be to frame things in the wrong way, can't it? Because actually, the the identification of of bodies for police is much broader than that, still, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that, for example, in terms of England and Wales. Uh, the police receive around um, 300,000 or more missing persons reports uh, every year. But the vast majority of these will be solved within two days, will be solved and resolved. Um, so a small number of these missing persons cases may go on um, for several months, several years and even several decades, such as the case you've mentioned there um, in Birmingham. There are thousands of missing people across England and Wales and across the UK, and we know there are around a thousand unidentified bodies in the UK also. So some of those unidentified bodies may uh, be people who have been reported missing, uh, but for whatever reason, the cross-matching of those two data sets hasn't yet, um, yet been um, conducted for whatever reason that might be, such as different police force boundaries, for example. So somebody who goes missing up in Scotland, uh, perhaps they might have um, month late, months later taken their own life somewhere down south, you know, and um, it might be very difficult uh, to cross-match uh, two different pieces of data depending on... Um, you know, the, the quality of information that's recorded or um, the expertise um, involved in uh, certain investigations and so on. I mean, going back, though, I mean, that's straight away for me. And, and I'm a criminologist and I, I you know, I, I understand and know a little bit about crime. And some of that is, for example, tackling some of the, the myths that we have about crime. You know, one of the things we immediately see with our students, is our students tend to think of murder as, in the first instance, quite a common offence. And they think it happens far more frequently, you know, the, than very often it does. And when you start to take them back and say actually you know in the in england and wales we we only record about 650 to 700 murders a year it's not that frequent way too frequent but it's not that frequent but where you say straight away there that's that's a substantial figure isn't it a thousand bodies at the moment in in england and wales where we simply haven't been able to identify who that person is at the, at the moment it, it it's simply not known that seems even for me as a, a listener quite shocking so uh, there's potentially people out there who who don't know who have missing relatives and loved ones but they simply haven't been able to find out yet that they are sadly no longer with us 
Absolutely. Yes. And and as you say, a thousand, it does seem like quite a lot of cases. However, some police forces might only have one or two cases within their force area of unidentified bodies or um, unidentified remains. Mostly we find that um, uh, the majority of cases are either within the Metropolitan Police area, and perhaps that's for a number of reasons that we could explore further, uh, but also police forces that are along the coast. And um, within cases where an unident- uh, a body washes ashore and remains unidentified after death, there are many complications that can add to why identification is difficult. Um, for example, uh, you know, the level of decomposition, um, you know, and the uh, levels of, um, you know, forensic tests or examinations that can be conducted on um, the remains that have been found. But it's important to remember um, the idea that for every unidentified body, there's simply a corresponding missing persons report elsewhere, and all we need to do is connect the two. Unfortunately, that's a real oversimplification because in reality, a lot of people might not have the benefit of loved ones who care sufficiently about them to raise the alarm when they go missing. Um, Some people who've been laid to rest unidentified might not have been reported at all. They might be somebody who lives an isolated life, a transient life. They might not have made certain connections in life as perhaps we might have, you know, with a group of colleagues, group of friends, group of neighbours, however that might be. They might have gone missing in a different country, for example, or um, a missing persons report might have been recorded many years before they came to their death. So this, yeah. these complexities are the things that make the investigation into unidentified bodies very complex. Yes, sure. Absolutely. And of course, we do tend to, and, and I, I suppose we, we, we tend to latch on to some particular cases as well. And therefore, we do tend to th- see this often through a sort of prism of, of crime, of disappeared people and, and uh, where there's never been a resolution. So one of the things that kind of jumps out, even as we're, we're kind of um, having this discussion, for example, is, you know, I, I think um, people tend to know about, for example, the disappearance of, of the chef. Claudia Lawrence that becomes a very high profile media case you know we we know and and suspect in in that case that there's you know there's foul play and and so on and and it becomes very much the kind of focus of attention but as you say Emma there's a much wider context to what the police are investigating and trying to do which isn't necessarily always about dealing with criminal events or criminal actors you know there, there are of course instances where that happens as well where some criminals will essentially make sure that the victim disappears and then is either you know buried in a, in a shallow grave or perhaps put into water or and and therefore it may be some time before the remains are found or that offense is detected or so on but again a lot of the time that that isn't the that isn't the general context in which the work is is happening is it No, absolutely. Um, I think from my own experiences of um, reviewing unidentified bodies um, cases as part of Locate International, for example, um, is that a factor in many of these uh, investigations is suicide. And therefore, um, the person may have been in a very dark place in the days leading up to their uh, death. And um, 
for you know many reasons didn't want to be found didn't want to be identified and therefore it's very difficult uh, for the police to try and follow a trail to try and identify who they are um, you know because at the time of their death their mind was in a very uh, dark you know complicated place um, they may may not be in an area that has any links to them at all throughout their life you know uh, yeah. there are various cases for example a case in Ireland in which uh, a man remained unidentified for many many years he uh, when the case was solved it was identified that he had flown from America to Ireland to take his own life in a secluded woodland area. Um, so there were no clues, there would be no clues really in the local vicinity um, about him. Nobody would have probably recognised him, for example, because he only travelled to that place to take his own life, uh, but eventually, um, many years later, was identified. So we've got to take in those factors as well as to what can be uh, complex, you know, in relation to these cases. Absolutely. And I suppose it's interesting, therefore, that you say, you know, that the forces that often record more um, unidentified bodies, for example, might be coastal forces, because that opens up the fact that people may take their own life by jumping off cliffs or, or jumping off tall bridges into rivers, the flow of the tides, for example. And it can take an awful long time as well, can't it, for, for remains to be discovered, which makes the, the that then makes it very difficult to identify who the individual is in many ways and this is where uh, Caroline this is where you come in, in in some ways isn't it could you tell us a little bit about your your role as a, a forensic archaeologist and, and and what you do yeah absolutely so um I mean my work is kind of divided into two main areas I suppose really as Emma's alluded to there so predominantly I work in the in the search and recovery um side of forensic archaeology so if a person has gone missing um, and their whereabouts is unknown. Um, I'll use a, a range of different methods to try to find them. Um, and um, obviously, uh, uh, there are many motivations for, for doing this, not least of all the fact that family members want to know the fate of, of their loved ones, um, but also obviously in criminal cases um, to gather evidence to prosecute offenders as well. Um, so those methods can range from anything from um, detailed death-based assessment work, so um, kind of akin to historical research, um, gathering together maps, information about the geography of, of particular regions, learning from the police about um, the, the, the profile of the, of the missing person, but also the profile of an offender to see what means they may have had available to them to transport bodies, for example. Um, and then also then moving into the into the, the technology side of things, I deploy a lot of, of methods that enable me to detect um, human remains and other buried evidence um, from the air. So drone survey, for example, um, uh, also um, techniques that are capable of, of um, looking for depressions or vegetation change that might indicate the presence of a grave. Um, and then also, you know, walking in the field, looking for those kind of traces in the landscape and also using geophysical methods to look what's buried beneath the ground. So there's a long process that happens usually before the traditional excavation, the, different, the, the, the excavation phase, if you like, of, of searching for a body. Um, and, and so that that's kind of predominantly where my work lies. But then also, um, as we've been discussing, the, the, um, the um, uncovering of information about bodies that um, are victims who are unidentified, who have been found, um, but their fate is unknown um, in terms of, of how they came 
to be missing in that way. So, I mean, we're going to talk in, in some ways about two things today. We're, we're talking about missing um, people in, in the first instance and, and, and people who've gone missing. And then we're talking about um, identified and, and unidentified um, bodies in, in essence. And that and there is a difference between those. Now, it, it, in some ways, I, I suppose the, the kind of... Uh, you know the terminology is one that some people can probably guess at, but but what is the difference? What is the difference between a, a, an identified and an and unidentified body, and, and and how does the the framework operate around that in in England and Wales? So essentially. Um there are various people who will go missing um, and their whereabouts will be unknown um, and the, there may be a whole host of reasons why those individuals go missing some involving criminal activity um, some some not people who've, who've decided to end their life for example um, or who've fallen victim to an accident and their whereabouts are unknown um, and there may be cause therefore for the police to search for those individuals to identify the location where their body um, resides, um, obviously to determine their fate, to determine that they are actually deceased, and then to identify them as an individual and return the body back to their family. In other cases, bodies are found um, either as a result of those searches um, or um, serendipitously. So, you know, for example, by members of the public um, walking the dog or, um, you know, by builders excavating a building site, for example. Um, and the fate of those individuals um, won't be known and, and the identity of those individuals may not be known. So then it's the police's job to actually determine who that person is. Um, and on the circumstances surrounding their death. So those two um, those two situations can collide, as, as I've mentioned, but also um, they, they can be entirely two separate different situations and therefore require different responses, both from the police and also for forensic experts involved in, in the investigation of them. It's it, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I was watching um, something fairly recently on on the news where um, a, a member of the public had been walking their dog in, uh, I believe, not far from somewhere in Herefordshire, and had found pieces of bone, for example. And uh, and the obvious thing then is that you know you you phone the police and and straight away because what else would would someone do? And it was identified that it was part of a human skull, but. Um, you know, the, the the thing that then could happen is you would you would think, you know, oh, the police are going to tape off the area. There's going to be a massive investigation and so on. But actually, the the result of, of this one was that the the bones that were encountered were were several thousand years old and and had simply been kind of washed up from the river. So there is there is an element whereby the police could come to you for for all sorts of unknown and unexplained reasons as well, aren't they? It, it's not necessarily even that all remains necessarily that are found are going to be within the lifetime or the history of, of being recent enough to be investigated. Yeah, absolutely. And this is quite common um, as, as forensic archaeologists like myself and forensic anthropologists um, to be involved in those kinds of cases. So so when the police, um, you know, get get such a phone call and need to know, um, firstly, whether the remains are human or whether the remains are archaeological or forensic in nature, they might enlist um, our help. So um, up until the point at which we can prove otherwise, we have to assume there is a chance that that individual may have gone missing recently. We have to assume that, that there is a chance that 
that individual could have been the victim of a crime. So we have to um, conduct our investigations in such a way as to be very meticulous. So, um, you know, the crime scene, um, as it were, or the potential crime scene, you know, will be will be sealed by the police. Um, the remains will be you know, thoroughly documented, photographed, um, various other forms of recording, um, quite commonly now 3D visualizations made of those remains um, before they're moved and, and taken to a laboratory for, for analysis. Um, and so it can actually, you know, sometimes be many months even before you actually know whether um, those remains belong to somebody who's gone um, missing very recently. Um, I had a case up in Cumbria um, where it was actually six months before we got um, the dating evidence back from the samples taken from the remains um, for us to find out that these remains were several thousands of years old. And so up until that point, um, as I said, they have to be treated as, as being of, of forensic significance. Yeah, sure. Because, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose you simply can't tell just by looking, can you? That that that's one of the that that's one of the reasons that that expertise is is needed, and and forensic science is is part of that. Um, that that I think is is perhaps one of the things that that plays out in some of the the kind of representations, which is something that, that I'd, I'd be interested to to ask you both about, because you know the kind of places that you kind of commonly encounter descriptions of. Um, uh, you know, forensic work, forensic anthropology, archaeology, and and so on. I, I think of um, the the kind of uh, the fictionalised novels that that feature um, Kathy Reichs and you know the character of kind of Kay Scarpetta, I think it is, or you, you know we we see things like. Um, Silent Witness or Waking the Dead, and and those uh, you know. Are, do almost suggest that, that that there isn't a scientific process that plays out. It's very much a, a kind of uh, a look and, and see and the expert simply could know and, and tell straight away. But very often for, for both of you, I guess, there's a there's a, an extremely kind of rigorous scientific process, slightly different, uh, but, but a rigorous scientific process around the gathering and looking at an examination of evidence to try and find out what's happened. So first question, I suppose, in a way is how, how do you feel that these things are portrayed in the kind of popular media and, and in the popular mind? Do the public really understand or know enough about what you do? Um, and then the, the kind of second question more so. Um, so how, Caroline and, and Emma, did you come to find yourselves in, in this line of work? Because it's it's fascinating and interesting, but um, I, I, it's, it's not one that many people, I, I suppose, will have encountered. Yeah, so um, I mean, essentially, that for TV, of course, they have to speed everything up. That's what makes it um, interesting for a viewer. You know, if you you, you obviously couldn't um, make all these the reality of all the testing that goes on take as long as a TV episode. So, um, you know, so there's there's underlying truths in there, and often, obviously, television programs, novelists, they they do work with specialists to find out information about those procedures. So, the kind of essence of of what we do is represented. Um, yeah. In, in popular culture, but um, but yeah, the, the forensic science is by its very nature often slow, meticulous, and necessarily so because what is at stake here is obviously um, first of all the dignity of an individual, um, so the careful handling of human remains is extremely important. Um, secondly, obviously any um, mistakes could um, um, 
jeopardize the evidence um, if we're dealing with a crime or even to establish whether a crime's taken place. Um, and thirdly, obviously, again, any mistakes could prevent you from identifying an individual and therefore lead to a situation where many weeks, months, years later, um, a body remains unidentified. So it's extremely important um, that we carry out those processes in, a, in an extremely meticulous manner. And establishing the age of an individual, um, the, the sex of an individual, their, um, whether they've experienced any signs of trauma. These are all things that anthropologists do that we often, you know, we often see on the, on the television, establishing yeah. post-mortem interval, but they are things that take a very long time. And um, I suppose there you raise something that's that's really important as well, which is why there is that necessity of, of expert involvement as well, because we, we often also see, you know, for example, and, and it's it's been highlighted recently, including in cases where I've already mentioned, you know, where, where people who are desperate to find the remains of loved ones may have an indication that they could be you know well the person that now we've connected who might have worked at this place might have taken them to here and they then have that kind of desire to go out and search the scene as it were or a site that's been suggested whereas the police are saying no we're we're, we're not going to do that and that creates that can create attention but as you say caroline it's really important isn't it that such things are, are done in a in a considered manner that that's kind of properly uh, sequential thought about where evidential preservation is is important for example it 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 is about kind of doing things the right way through expert analysis and I, I guess a lot of time spent in a white coat in some instances in laboratories as well yeah absolutely and i think um emma emma you know i think i think you you can say a lot more on on this from the, the uk perspective as well because i know you've worked obviously a lot with family members so you've got the scientific end but then you you know as i said you've got the ramifications of what happens if you if you make a mistake and and emma i know you've worked with a you know a lot of family members and can perhaps say a bit more about um about the impact upon them and and what 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 not knowing does to those family members Absolutely, yeah. So, um, families of um, who have missing loved ones or missing loved one um, are known um, to be in a state of ambiguous loss, um, um, which was a term coined um, by an academic uh, with the surname Boss, uh, I believe, and um, that state of ambiguous loss is really can be explained simply as um, not being able to grieve, not being able to move on, um, not having the closure that is provided by having a burial, a cremation, a funeral, you know, some kind of service, some kind of moment to mark a goodbye, you know, mm. and start a new chapter. And families of missing persons don't have that benefit. They don't know um, often how their loved one died, they don't know whether there was pain and suffering, they don't know where they are, there's not a spot that they can go to to grieve for their loss of that person. Or and indeed, I suspect that in some instances it must be very difficult to accept the loss because you've got no evidence that it's absolutely. occurred in, in a way. So it, it creates that, you know, that question ever there lingering on in the, in the mind about, you know, I, are they still out there somewhere? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that um, without having personal experience of a missing person, it would be very hard for us to understand what a family of a missing person goes through. Um, And it's very difficult to be able to put yourself in their shoes um, without experiencing it. But um, from what I've seen from uh, working with families of missing uh, people, um, I think the best approach really uh, between, for example, authorities and families is that communication having that continued line of communication as you mentioned there might be um, a new site of interest you know and always good I think to have communication with the family around any significant developments before any forensic work takes place and you know of, of course that then might get into the media and things like that so that line of communication is very important uh, with families to try and um, you know, uh, make the investigation as um, smooth as possible uh, mm. for the for the families. And yes, um, I think you do hear of cases in which families have taken uh, into their own hands searches. You know, when perhaps the police have um, made a decision not to search a particular area. Um, but I think without having been in a family member's shoes, it's very hard. Um, to you know to understand and um you know i think something that's very difficult uh, to discuss yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely yeah i was going to say I, I think that you know this is this is something that obviously as a forensic archaeologist like i've encountered quite commonly um because that that kind of feeling um more so in the, the kind of arena of, of genocide and mass violence obviously where it's it's, it's on an amplified scale that um individuals or, or groups of families will get together and, and they will they will um you know dedicate their lives to carrying out the searches because they they want you know they want to feel that that something is being done at every moment and um and so as emma said that that communication between the t- search teams and the experts that are involved is is vitally important um and as you alluded to james i mean obviously it is in- incredibly important um, to have experts involved in those searches because obviously that gives you the best chance um of finding the the remains and obviously um of gathering the 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 evidence that's needed and and sometimes when um you know when searches for example where police don't employ um forensic experts there have been instances in the past where evidence has been lost and 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 you know we we don't necessarily understand all the details because it is important obviously to find the the body um of, of an individual as as emma said it's also important to understand how that crime was carried out um, and in order to explain, because that's also an answer that families want. They want to know what happened to that person. So employing forensic archaeologists to do those searches can give some of those answers. Um, and, um, you know, I can I can completely understand why families, you know, would feel the need to take it upon themselves, um, you know, to, to be engaged. So therefore, it, it, you know, that, that this, this isn't anything against um, you know, I can totally understand why they would do that, but I think that's why it's so important for the authorities to to step up and and, and carry out those searches and communicate with families to the best of their ability, so, because it's also a traumatic experience for families to have to do that on a number of different levels. So, you know, the, we need to make sure the infrastructure is there to help them in the first place. 
Yeah, and it, it really does highlight why it's, it's important work, isn't it? I mean, I, I think of, um, I, you know, and, and we can think of several examples as well where um, family members, including the father of uh, Claudia Lawrence, um, uh, you know, go to their grave never never having had the closure that, that, you know, they want to have about what happened to my loved one, you know. So it is a, it is a really important part. But but it's, it's much, in some ways, it's much broader, as Emma says, it's in some instances than simply being just a, a, about murder it, it runs from everything from a, someone who may have taken their own life right the way through to in some instances you know horrendous historical instances of of, of mass murder as well and and it's and and therefore it can kind of bring not only in some instances justice but but closure justice so much more with with that in mind, Staffordshire University is fairly unique, isn't it, in in the way that we we approach um, essentially kind of both informing and educating people about this, but also giving them the opportunity to to work in this area, and and that's particularly where the the work of our cold case unit comes to the fore. Emma, could you um could could you tell us a little bit about how Staffordshire set this up and and, and what it does? Yes, of course. So um, Staffordshire University formed a relationship with Locate International, um, the organisation I mentioned earlier on in the uh, podcast. And the, um, Locate International have, have um, a partnership with 12 universities across the UK, Staffordshire University being one of them. And each of those has its own cold case unit and perhaps each focusing, focusing on different uh, particular areas of interest. Um, so Staffordshire University's cold case unit really does have two strands. The first of which is an international uh, element whereby um, students can work together with international students from across uh, the world to work live together um, using online uh, technology, uh, so no face-to-face -face meetings required, uh, reviewing um, cold cases of missing persons or unidentified bodies uh, cases. And then the other strand is um, based within Staffordshire University, reviewing um, missing persons and cold cases uh, around unidentified bodies as also, just as a team within the university, but using expertise and collaboration with the other universities in the network, community volunteers also, um, and really working together just to achieve uh, results uh, in terms of solving those cases, providing closure, hopefully, to families of missing persons and returning names to those who uh, remain unidentified after death. But I'll just let Caroline explain a bit more about um, the International Cold Case Analysis Project and uh, the workings of the Cold Case Unit. So this is a really exciting opportunity. Um, I think, you know, all of us involved in it feel really, really honoured um, to be able to do this kind of work because we, these are cases that have um, uh, that have gone cold. So cases that remain um, unsolved. And obviously, um, you know, the, the, there is the, the old um, sort of saying that time is a healer. But I think for most families, um, um, as we've already alluded to, with regards to missing persons, no matter what the circumstances of, of that um, person going missing not having those answers doesn't probably get easier with time it actually probably gets worse um, 
And therefore, you know, for us, it's it's a real honour to be able to um, hopefully try and so help solve some of these cases that have been to, referred to us um, by police because they've they've reached a um, you know a conclusion in their own investigations and they need to seek additional expertise. So, um, you know, at Staffordshire University, we've got a, a unique array of, of expertise um, from criminologists to um, archaeologists, forensic scientists, investigators, and policing, to name just a few. And so. We're, we're teaming up um, staff members and students from across all of those different areas um, to undertake this this line of work. And the international cold case analysis, um, you know, is is particularly um, unique uh, um, in in what we're trying to achieve um, because there are, there are um, students and staff members from universities across the UK, but also in Australia, working together with the Lower Saxony Police Academy um, and their students. So you really, again, you've got this very interdisciplinary um, a team of people who can all um, learn something from each other and hopefully bring new dimensions to these cases. And so the students work together over a period of time, um, uh, over a period of weeks. It's very, very intensive, reflecting the true nature of a, of a, a criminal investigation um, or a police, um, a police investigation. Um, and working with photographs, working with um, testimonials, um, uh, transcripts, documents, um, and also speaking to people, the police and, and prosecutors involved in those cases, the students are then asked to, to develop new leads, um, which are then passed back to the prosecutors. So we've now undertaken two of these um, and I can't say obviously anything about the detail of them because they're active cases. But the, our students and the students um, involved from across the world have given new leads to prosecutors and investigators to now pursue and hopefully will help resolve those cases. And although you can't say anything about those now, we are at some point in the future. Maybe crime tapes will be able to revisit and 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 talk again. I'm 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 hoping, which again gives an indication because, as you say, we you know we know what we're we know what we're talking about trying to achieve and and um, wish you every luck in reaching successful outcomes because it it is really important, as you're saying. You know, it's often um, it's it's often the sort of forgotten part of criminal justice. I mean, I I. I think of when I was talking earlier on about our media narratives, you know, and, and how they very often operate and, and work. Um, it, you know, the kind of classic story in, in criminal justice is is the one of, you know, the the offence happens, the story is told as panning out, and in the end, justice is is done, you know. But but actually all of the that have worked around the system do recognise that that kind of model doesn't always work as as the effective one. And there, there are those, you know, those instances where where unfortunately people just do not know and the, and the, the resolution isn't there for them and it it must be absolutely as you say it must be absolutely awful for those who you know never find themselves getting that closure and never never really know the answers yeah um, definitely and i think technology you know technology moving on and you know this is one of the reasons why why we've set up our cold case unit as well is is that you know over time new technology does become available so whilst you know obviously that situation you know it, it can feel very hopeless we, we we are hoping you know that that we're definitely going to be able to look at those cases again with with technology that has emerged in in recent years and and not not just technology but just new approaches you know new ways of thinking about um about for example how to find a clandestine burial what kind of indicators might there be to help you find a grave that, that, you know, even just 30 years ago, forensic archaeology as a discipline didn't exist. 
Um, and obviously techniques in the identification of human remains where we have a body that's been found and we don't know who they are. There are new technologies emerging all of the time that can help us um, obviously in terms of identifying DNA, but also um, in terms of facial reconstruction um, and, you know, um, and, and creating various profiles of, of, the, of where a person might be from or um, the types of food they might have eaten or, um, you know, the general things about their appearance that, that again, we, you know, even, even, even in the last few months, you know, there are always new developments. So absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's, it's places where potentially as well, offenders may have not, not thought about, you know, the potential for, for their crimes to, to revisit them at, at some point in the future. And I certainly remember, um, I remember interviewing someone who was, uh, who was convicted years after a, a, a murder, um, you know, convicted on DNA evidence that at the time, you know, wasn't available and then came to light some 20 years later and, and kind of saw him brought to justice. And you, you do, you know, there is there is always that potential there is always that that opportunity at some point in the future and and it must also be that that's one of the things that that can keep families uh, can give them some positivity as well because we've presented the not knowing as very negative in a way but it's also interesting isn't it that for some that needing to know can become a, a kind of an activity that does also give them a unity and a sense of purpose and, and focus going forward as well um and i, I think about for example um recent laws out and around the criminal justice system for example where if offenders won't reveal where they've put bodies um then essentially you know we'll, the the deniability of parole for example which again shows how how topical and and how relevant the whole wider discussion is in many ways i think um, but it, it's an absolutely um, fascinating area with some fascinating work being done by by both of you. And um, hopefully it's something that uh, as the cold case unit rolls forward and such would we, we hope delivers answers for, for people who, who don't have them at the moment, we might be able to come back and, and talk with some detail on, on what's happened. And, and that would be really, really great. Um, so... Thank you um, both Emma and Caroline. That was absolutely fascinating um, and, and really, really useful. Um, now, if you are interested in looking at what we're doing at Staffordshire University, um, come to our website where you'll also find um, listed a whole array of different courses that we offer. You could study with Caroline on forensic archaeology and genocide investigation. Um, we've got uh, master's courses in, in criminology, criminal justice, law, but also um, degrees in, in policing and, and particular running this series of the podcast we're we're looking and focusing on policing where we run police degree apprenticeships and, and various police related courses um, you might also want to check out staff profiles as, as well and the website gives details about what we're doing if you've enjoyed this episode of crime tapes you can get other episodes from spotify buzzsprout and all the usual other podcast outlets that i don't really know about listen to past episodes as well um, thanks for joining us today. We'll be back again shortly with another policing related topic. Um, so all that remains is for me to once again say um, thank you, Emma, um, and to Caroline Sturdy Coles, a, a massive thank you. Um, and I hope to have them back at some point in the future to talk more about the, the cold case unit at Staffordshire University. <laughs>